All right, and good morning, Ridge Point Church. How's everybody doing this morning? Now, I know it's kind of an overcast morning, and a lot of times that means we kind of have a hard time waking up and getting the day started, and our energy level might not be what it was last Sunday morning. Because last Sunday morning, I came into first service, and the audible response, because I normally ask, like, hey, how's everybody doing? Last week, the audible response was, was super loud. Everybody was into it. So I know it's overcast. We've got to kind of shake that stuff away real quick because this morning especially, I need some audience participation very quickly. So I'm going to try. I'm going to give you a second chance. We're re, restarting, resetting the whole thing. Uh, so let's start all over. Good morning, Rich Point Church. How's everybody doing? Much better, much better. We're glad that you're here this morning. We're kicking off a new series, a short series. I'll get to that in a little bit. But today's a special Sunday. A lot of you might not even be aware of this, uh, but our executive pastor, our buddy Chris Neff, is actually speaking at a relative's church this morning, and, and he, he was asked to speak to have a special event going on, and he had no idea why they asked him to speak, but he's speaking this morning at, at a very traditional church, and so he has to wear the suit and tie and all that stuff. And here's the thing, tomorrow morning, uh, he's going to come in, he normally edits the podcast, so tomorrow morning he's going to come in and listen to this. And so I want him to know right now that we're in his corner. One of my big deals this year is I want to celebrate the people around us. And so real quick, that big cheer that I just heard, I want to hear an even louder cheer for Chris Neff this morning. On the count of three, one, two, three. Yeah. Chris, hopefully we're, we, you heard that, man. We're cheering for you. We're excited about you this morning. If you would, I also want to pray for him and also pray for our service. So join us as we pray. Father, I just thank you for being tremendously gracious to us, God. Uh, the same way that we are able to cheer on the people around us, I believe right now you're cheering us on. And so, God, I pray that as we launch out in this new series talking about the vision of, of Ridgepoint Church and why we do some of the things that we do and, and where this is going in the next year, God, I pray that you'd give us an intense focus, God, a, a heart to understand and grasp exactly what it is that you're doing. Not even grasp the message, but grasp what it is that you're doing in our midst. And, God, that we propel that message and that vision even further than we think or imagine. And God, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, thank you for joining me and kind of cheering Chris on and getting the service started. Uh, listen, as, as we look at uh, the New Testament in particular and we look at the life of Jesus, uh, Jesus came as a religious teacher unlike any other. Now, obviously, that was because he was God himself, the, the Son of God, but God himself. And, and, and so he came as God incarnate, God in the flesh. Uh, but he also came with a very unique teaching style in that he would often speak in a way that the common person would understand. A lot of religious teachers came in and, and they'd speak in, in philosophical ways and it was kind of above everybody's head. But Jesus came, and though at times he spoke in parables and stuff, he, he spoke trying to tell stories that everybody would relate to. Uh, for, instance, for instance, in his day, uh, it was very agrarian culture. People knew all about farming because most people were either farmers or they knew farmers, or farmers somehow relate, they, they relate to farming very, very well. And so Jesus would use parables, like the parable of the sower, and, and, and he used stories that people could relate to. At one point, Jesus even says about himself, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And he'd use terminology that everybody could understand. I'm convinced that if Jesus were alive today and he's teaching in our culture, a lot of us today know a lot about sports. So he might use analogies that have something to do with sports. In fact, even by the time we get to the Apostle Paul, he uses boxing as an, as an analogy. He uses the Olympic races as analogies. So even in, in their culture, it wasn't uncommon for that. Uh, but I think even more so today, because most of us either uh, like sports, or we know someone that likes sports, 
or we at least have a basic working knowledge of, of the way sport works. If we talk about touchdowns and home runs, most people understand at least those basic concepts. Uh, so today I want to use a sport analogy for where we're at as a church. I'll do that from time to time. But in particular today, because I grew up in a neighborhood, in a community where so much has changed in the last 25 or 30 years that you don't see this a whole lot anymore. But in my neighborhood, if you drove down Ithaca Street North in St. Petersburg, Florida in the mid-1980s, you were guaranteed to see a whole group of kids outside playing. If the sun was up and school wasn't in session, we're going to be outside playing. Now, it happened to be that most of the people that I grew up with, we had a lot of boys that lived on our block, and, and most of us played a variety of sports. And so my parents put a basketball goal up in our, basket, in, our, in our front yard, in our driveway. We'd play basketball, and we'd play. We had a couple of houses together. We created a wiffle ball stadium, and we actually played wiffle ball on, on a routine basis. But the big one we played was we played a lot of football. And I'll never forget going to my buddy Eddie's house. And, and we'd often go to his house, he had a little bit bigger piece of yard, and we'd play football out there. And, and as we grew up, the plays became much more complicated and much more precise. You know, when we were, when we were young, it's kind of like, hey, go out, and I hope I can throw the ball to you. But as we got older, we said, hey, I want you to run a post, and I want you to run a post corner, I want you to run a five-yard. And, and we had these very precise plays. And the older we got, we started getting the flag football, and, and the plays became more and more precise. And we want to make sure that you're right here when we need you, and this is the play, and this is the route, and all of those things. And the plays became more and more precise. And we started to have a clear vision as a team. If we're going up against another team, as we get more serious about it, if we're going up against another team, we want to figure out what their weaknesses were and expose their weaknesses. And so we came in with a specific game plan of play, saying this is our plan. This is what we want to accomplish this game. And we kind of execute that plan for a little bit. And, and most of the time, I'd end up playing quarterback. And so we'd have a plan coming in as we began the game. But as it got to the end of the game, there was always a moment where you needed one final play. And so everyone kind of rallied together and said, okay, we have our plan and our plan's working. But we need one final play that they're not expecting. And so inevitably, the quarterback would gather the team around. And he'd get down on one knee. And he would start writing in the sand and telling everybody, here's what I want you to do. And here's what I want you to do. And I turned to Eddie, my best friend, and said, Eddie, I need you to run this route. And I turned to his brother Carl, or I turned to my brother Eric, or Tony, or Jack. I said, here are the routes that we have to run. Now let's go to it. It wasn't that the plan itself had changed. But the execution of the plan had we weren't entirely changing the plan up itself. But we're saying, listen, we've been doing well up until this point. But now that times are desperate, the execution of that plan needs to change a little bit. As we look at our country and our culture right now, how many would just admit, looking at the last couple of weeks in our country, that right now it appears like things might be a little bit desperate? Like things are changing radically by the moment. And as a church, we have to figure out how to respond to an ever-changing and dynamic culture. Now, now we know what our, what our plan is. And it's not that the plan is ever going to change. In fact, we were talking about it a little bit this week in staff meeting. And we said there are two things that, that never, we're never going to fall away from the great command and the great commission. Those two things are forever going to be the pillars of what we do as a church. Our plan itself doesn't change. But at times, the execution of the plan changes a little bit. 
And in desperate times, it says, right now, we're going to draw some plays up in the sand, and we're going to say, okay, let's now get to it. And that's what this series is about. It's a short two-week series called United. And when we had that football team together, we said, we have to be together on this plan, and everyone has to know what they're doing, and everyone has to execute that plan to the best of their abilities moving forward. Now let's go to it. And so the short two-week series is about two things. Uh, the first week we're talking about today is really uh, kind of understanding what the plan is and buying into the plan. And next week it's, it's sharing the plan. Uh, so today we're talking about this idea of buying into the plan and understanding what our vision is as a church. We have to understand that. We have to catch the vision before we share the vision. And so I want to make sure at the outset, because we talk about this from time to time, but I want to make sure we understand why vision is so important for us as a church uh, for, for me, when I talk about vision, I get so excited about this because we have to understand why we exist as a church. In fact, for me, the most dynamic communicator of our generation is a guy by the name of Andy Stanley. And Andy Stanley actually, for me, also communicates a lot, whole lot about church vision. And Andy Stanley said this in his book, Deep and Wide. He said this, one of the perplexing things we face as church leaders is that most church people don't know what the church is or why it exists. So he's writing and saying, one of the things that we face as church leaders, and I would say this not just about people in the church, but I would say this even about a lot of church leaders, is that we don't know what the church is or why it exists. If you ask the average person, let's, let's get out of church walls for a second, and we're just walking down the street, and we ask the average person, what do you think the church is? And they say, well, I know a lot of churches, there's, there's a building over here, and there's a building over there, and they're all churches. But the church itself isn't a building. In fact, the church itself is, is a movement. And so for us to fully embrace the vision of the church, we have to view it as such. The church is not the building, it's the people. The church is the movement. And then to understand why it exists. Now, I've been a part of a lot of different churches, a lot of different style of churches. And, and in every one of them, if, if they ever fully understand and develop the vision, people rally around that vision. But often the struggle is we don't know what the church is, and we definitely don't grasp why the church exists. So if we're to do a pop quiz right now and ask this question, why does Ridgepoint Church exist? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I'm going to just, in the back of your mind, try to figure that out. Do you know right now, because we talk about this a lot, but do you know why... Ridgepoint Church exists. Here's, here's our purpose statement. Here's why Ridgepoint Church exists. RPC's vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Christ. Pause there a second. Because a lot of times when we talk about this, and later on we are going to talk about this, but a lot of times when we talk about this, we focus on the second half of our vision statement. By building a church on church people like to attend. We talk about that a lot. But our purpose as a church is to lead people. And by leading people, we say lead all people in a growing relationship with Christ. What that means is if today someone walks in the doors of Ridgepoint Church for the very first time, we want to be able to, through the teaching, through groups, through different discipleship opportunities, we want to be able to offer the person who's brand new to church, who's not sure about any of this Jesus stuff, we want to be able to offer an environment for them to be able to take their next steps. And we want to be able to, at the same time, offer an opportunity for the person who walks inside the doors of the church that comes in with a doctorate in theology, that says, I've been studying my Bible the whole life, 
We want to be able to offer them an opportunity to learn exactly what it is they're supposed to learn. That as a doctor of theology, how can you continue to learn and how can we offer environments and opportunities for you to continue to grow in your faith? Why? Because we believe our purpose is to lead all people in a growing relationship with Christ. And if you're a doctor of theology, if you have 50 years of theological training, there still is opportunity for us to grow because our life is a perpetual learning opportunity. And the more we discover about God and about Jesus, the more we realize there's that much more to discover. And so as a church, we say this, but we have to understand that our main purpose is to lead everyone in a growing relationship with Jesus. Wherever they're at right now, we want to be able to figure out, here's what it takes for you to be able to take the next steps in your life. And the second part of that is by. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. Now here's how we're going to accomplish that. We want to lead all people in a growing relationship with Christ by building a church unchurched people love to attend. By saying we want to constantly be aware that there are people who are outside the walls of the church that need to be made aware of the message and the purpose that we have as a church. And so in order for us to get there, there are two types of people that we want to be regularly associated with Ridgepoint Church. Number one is outsiders. Now, you and I have a tendency to talk about this a lot, but we want to be a church. Unchurched people love to attend. So the, for the person who didn't grow up going to church, the person who says, I don't know about all this Jesus stuff, we want to make sure that they feel welcomed and a part of what's taking place. But just as important as outsiders being a part of the vision of Ridgepoint Church, so also are insiders who are aware of the outsiders. See, the danger isn't to have insiders associated with your church. In fact, if you don't have that, it's hard to have sustainable growth. However, if you and I, especially if you've been going to church for more than three or four years, our mentality does start to change at that point. It doesn't take very long for us to go from being outsiders and not a part of church to being insiders and becoming very church very quickly. And here's how everything, the dynamic of our, of our relationships change at that point. It's because if you've been part of church for three or four years, there's a very good chance that your closest friends are also part of that particular church or other churches in the area. And so it's very easy for us to fall into the this fabric of being insiders focused on insiders. And so I want our church full of outsiders, but also full of insiders who are aware of outsiders. Because that's how we actually start to build up this vision to lead all people in a growing relationship with Christ by building a church unchurched people love to attend. By saying, man, we're going to do some things differently. We're going to change things up. Here's some things we want to accomplish this month. Here's some things we want to accomplish this year. And in doing so, we always want to be cognizant that there are people who've never heard this message before who we have to be building up relationships with them outside the walls of the church because chances are if we don't do that, if you and I don't do that, they're not just going to stumble in the church next Sunday. That very rarely happens. In fact, I've never, as, as pastor of Ridgepoint Church, I've never been standing at the door and someone like stumbles off the street and says, whoops, I tripped, I'm at church now. On their part, it's a conscious effort to say, okay, I'm, I'm looking for something. And if I'm looking for something deeper than what I'm living right now, I'm going to turn to the people that I trust the most. And it's by us saying, we're going to remove the walls of the church. And we're going to go outside and say, this is our vision. I heard a friend of mine talking about this idea recently in his church. 
And he was talking about the idea of being, the, the difference between being renters of a vision and being buyers of a vision. He said, it's the difference between renting a car and buying a car. If you rent a car, there's a reason why there's a saying that drive it like you, like you rented it. Like there's a reason behind that. Because when I rent a car, which doesn't happen all that much, but if I rent a car, I'm not going to go check the tire pressure. And I'm not, I'm not going to go check the oil to make sure the oil is full. Like, it's not my car. I don't, if, if it doesn't last outside the time I drive it, it's not that big a deal. But if I own the car, I'm going to take more care of that. And so when we're renters of the vision, we kind of come in on Sunday morning and say, okay, that was kind of cool. And then I leave, and I'm not bought in, so I just kind of, okay, that's it. I'm not bought in. I'm not t- kicking the tires throughout the week. I'm not checking the oil pressure. I'm not doing any of that stuff. But when I own the vision, I make it my own. And so I want to do this this morning, as we kind of kick off this series, again, it's just a two-week series, but as we kick off this series, and we're building on, on this context, I want us to do this. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go, on, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 15. There are a couple of verses in Acts chapter 15 that we often talk about when we get to the second half of our vision, that, that idea of being a church, unchurched people love to attend. We'll often turn to verses nine, Acts 15, uh, verses 19 and 20. It's kind of, okay, this is why we do what we do. And if you've been over a part of Rich Point Church for maybe the last decade or so, you've probably heard those verses quoted as much as any other verses uh, in, in what we've done over the course of the past 10 years. And I want to get there, but before we get there, I want to lay the context for why this statement was written. Now, if you could imagine for a second, uh, prior to the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church, it's the history of the New Testament church, uh, prior to that, we have the life of Jesus, and then prior to that, we have 400 silent years, and then prior to that, we have the Old Testament. Now, for those who have grown up in church, you're probably aware the Old Testament is the, is the foundation of what we get to in the New Testament. Uh, there's a statement about what was, what was concealed in the Old Testament was eventually revealed in the New Testament, and Jesus and all of that. But the Old Testament was given, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul calls it a, a schoolmaster or a bus driver. The Old Testament was given to, to make people aware of their need for redemption. And so in the Old Testament, we have a bunch of laws that are given. In fact, there are laws upon laws and precepts upon precepts. And the laws governed every facet of the Old Testament believer's life. It governed what they could wear. It governed what they could eat, who they talked to, who they, who they hung out with. Uh, the amount of work they could do, what the Sabbath was like, and, and there were religious rules, and there were personal rules, and there were all these laws. So many laws, in fact, that nobody could actually keep all of the laws. The laws were meant to, to be a, a school bus driver transporting everyone to their need for redemption in their life. So I think there were 435 laws that were given, and it says nobody could fulfill, could, could fulfill all of the laws. And so for everybody, for every single person, they fell. And their falling pointed them to their need of redemption, the redemption that was ultimately going to come with Jesus. Well, in the Old Testament, most of the believers, because the law is given to the Jewish people, most of the believers in the Old Testament are Jewish. And they try as best they can to observe those laws with as much detail as they can. And so for thousands of years, they're, they're observing laws. And then Jesus comes. And ultimately, he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And so Jesus comes with his powerful teaching, and Jesus dies, and he rises from the dead. And then in the book of Acts, 
The gospel goes out first predominantly to Jewish people, but then eventually, especially through the Apostle Paul, who becomes a missionary to the Gentiles, who's anybody who's not Jewish, the gospel starts to go to the Gentiles. Now, here's where we start to have one of the very first issues of conflict that's happening in the early church. The very first, one of the very first issues of conflict happens because the Jewish believers are sitting here. Now, now at the very beginning, I said the church is what? The church is a, right, movement. Awesome. <laughs> uh, everyone's paying attention. Nail that first test question. I got you. Uh, so the, the church is a movement. With any movement at its, at its roots, when it's first getting started, there's a very real possibility that anything early on in a movement of a church could, could destroy the movement very quickly. And so the church is, is starting, the early church is starting, and, and there's a source of conflict that at least at the outset appears like this could cause irreparable damage to the universal church. It could have stopped the movement literally just as the movement's getting started. And what has happened is, is there are the Jewish people who have embraced Jesus. says, I believe Jesus was the Messiah. I believe Jesus is the Messiah. And so I'm choosing to follow Jesus. But the Jewish people, many of them say, but, but I'm not going to give up on following my laws. I believe Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, but I'm not going to give up on following the law. And so a bunch of Jewish believers said, I'm going to continue to follow the law. And they began to try to pass on some of the Jewish rules and Jewish customs to people who were Gentiles who weren't Jewish. And, and, and eventually they started to make it a condition of salvation. Now the first one wasn't a big deal. The second one wasn't even really that big of a deal. But the third one, when they started to make it a condition of salvation, they started to say all of the laws that we observed in the Old Testament you also have to observe those laws. If you're truly going to be a follower of Jesus, then you have to follow all of these laws that we had in the Old Testament. Like, he's the fulfillment of these laws, so now go follow these laws. And so there started to become a great source of division about this. And the division is so great that it has a chance to, to knock off this movement before it begins. So in Acts chapter 15, I want to begin in verse 1. Before later on, we'll read verses 19 and 20. It says this. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, teaching believers. Unless you are circumcised, which was an Old Testament law. Unless you are circumcised, circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, for, for Jewish babies, they're supposed to be circumcised in the first eight days. But for converts, they could be circumcised later. I find it painful this is a law they jump to. <laughs> but they said, listen, for the believing men, if you've not been circumcised, then you cannot be saved. This is the one they jump to. And they say, listen, if you truly want to be a follower of Jesus, if you truly want to be saved, you have to start to follow the law. You have to start to follow the law as it's been given to us. You have to follow this law. So it says, the men came down from Judea, teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And Paul and Barnabas comes, Paul being the missionary to the Gentiles, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not accurate. And so there starts to be this discussion, there starts to be this debate. Uh, we think church issues and church problems are, are, are a modern day issue. 
It's not from the very beginning of the church. There's debate and dissension about the way the church should be run, the way the church should be handled. And it says there's no small dissension and debate with them. And it says this, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Even in the midst of the dissension of the moment, there's maturity. And so they say, okay, let's go back to Jerusalem. Let's go back to our centralized headquarters and let's figure this thing out together. One of the beautiful things throughout church history is that from time to time there arose divisions within the church. And they would convene councils to get together to say, okay, if God's going to protect the church and provide for the church, then let's have the wisdom of, of an abundance of, of mature council meeting together. And so they convene this first council in Jerusalem to meet and discuss this. Verse 3 says, So being sent on the way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. So all these people are getting saved, and everyone's joyous and happiest about this. Verse 4 says, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles, and the elders, and they, they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up. It's interesting that they're called believers. Yet they have the history of being the Pharisees who used to be the religious elite who believed in holding to the letter of the law. So the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. So here's within Jerusalem, there's people saying, Listen, they have to follow the law, including to the point of being circumcised. And so the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. And said this, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. That by the mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He says, listen, salvation's only through believing in Jesus. And, and, and the message started to go forth. We started to proclaim this message. And verse 8 says, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. This wasn't just a Jewish thing. But when they started to believe and the Holy Spirit went out, he started to convict Jews and Gentiles. And so he says, the message started to go out. They received the Holy Spirit just like we did. And he made no distinction between us and them. There is no more Jew and Gentile. There is no more bond and free. There is no man. And female, there was no difference having cleansed their hearts simply by faith. He says, Not by the things that you do. He cleansed their heart simply by this one thing by faith itself. And then in verse 10, it says, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? It's interesting he throws this out there because he says you're trying to get these new believers to follow the letter of the law when none of us throughout the course of history, not one of us has ever been able to keep every facet of the law. So why are you now trying to put this unbearable yoke upon these Gentile believers that throughout our history none of us have been able to achieve? He says you're doing something that's really, really impossible and we've already proven it that none of us have done it. And now you're trying to force it on someone else just because they're the new kids in town. Just because they're the new believers, you try to say, okay, let's start to add stuff on them that we can never accomplish ourselves. And he points them back and says the only way redemption is possible, the very reason why the law was given was that it was through Jesus that deliverance was going to come. And so stop trying to have them live to a standard that's an impossible standard to keep. 
Verse 11. But we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. It's not by the works that we've done. It's not that we've been circumcised or that we followed the letter of the law. We have been saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. And he already shared stories about Gentiles who'd come to faith in Christ. And he says, just as they have and just as they will. And so they, they convene for a while and there's, there's more discussion about what's taking place. And, and they're actually trying to come up with a decision. Is it necessary for Gentile believers to go through a circumcision in order for them to be saved? Like, are we attaching anything to salvation? And at the very end, James, it's interesting, James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, who's become a leader in the church in Jerusalem. Listen, if there's any other pastor that's right in the thick of this is going to be a big deal within his church, it's James, who's leading a church in Jerusalem. And he says this, which we get down to in verse 19, which is often the verses that we talk about. He says, therefore, my judgment, you're seeking wisdom on this matter, therefore, my judgment is this. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We should not, in other words, we should not make it difficult for those who are outside of, of, of our faith to come to faith in God by attaching things that aren't meant to be there. We're not going to make it difficult. We're not going to trouble them of the Gentiles who turn to God. We don't want to make it difficult for them. But should write to them to abstain from the polluted things, things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. It's interesting because a lot of times when we read passages like this, some people would propel this idea or perpetuate this myth. Well, what we're talking about here is an easy believism. It's not at all. In fact, what he teaches here is he says, listen, we're about to write a letter. But before we write the letter to all the church, we want to write a letter to the church before we do that. We don't want to make it hard for, for a person outside the walls of the church to come to faith in Jesus. We're not going to make it difficult by attaching things that were not meant to be there. It's simply through the grace of Jesus that we're all accepted into God's kingdom. And so we're not going to add anything to that. But having said that, and they do this, in the letter they write, they say it's simply by faith in Christ that we're saved. But there's not an easy beliefism because he's talked about things like we're going to abstain from things polluted by idols. In their day, sometimes they would eat meat that had been offered up to idols. By the way, in the book of Romans, Paul says it's not necessarily a bad thing. But James writing saying because the churches we're dealing with, sometimes people could be offended by that. So just as Gentile believers, try not to do that, not to offend them. And also to abstain from sexual immorality just because we have to develop standards. So he says be aware of other cultures. Be aware of, of just being pure in the way that you live your life. But never as believers attach anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that is why we exist. When we talk about the vision of Ridgepoint Church, that is the very reason why we exist. Not to make a bunch of people look just like us and talk just like us and act just like us, but to point everybody we come in contact with to who Jesus is and what he can do in their life. For the person today who says, I have been trying my hardest to kick this terrible habit in my life, we point them and say, here, Jesus is the one who eventually is going to be the one who's going to be able to deliver you. I can't do that, but Jesus can. For the person today who says, my marriage is falling apart, and I don't think there's any salvation coming to our marriage, we say, we're not wise enough to figure that out ourselves, but we want to point you to Jesus because he can deliver you from whatever it is that you're dealing with. The gospel is the message that's going forth. And so they do this. They gather. They convene this council. 
And the council through clarity of the elders and leaders. So here's what the message is. And they write the letter. And the letter goes forward and the church responds. And the church celebrates. The church gets excited because now there is no more Jew and Greek. There is no more bond and free. There is no more male and female. It says we're all one in Christ. There's cohesion around the vision of the church because the church came together united. They were no longer divided by the things that made them different. But the church was united behind the vision that God had given them. We have a tendency in our culture to be divided by the things that we find very different. All you have to do is get up on social media this week, and you'll see that. Like, everyone wants to put their opinion out there, and if you don't agree 100% with me, then obviously you're wrong. Like, that's everybody's mindset. It's not one or two. Everybody's like, if, if you don't agree with me, then you hate everybody. And we all get that way, and the church says, listen, we're not going to agree upon everything. But now that we have a common, united vision, we're going to go forward with that. And the church said, we're not going to miss our opportunity. God had started this movement. This movement was starting to, to snowball, and thousands of people were coming to Jesus. But dissension had the opportunity to unravel that movement. And the church responded and said, I'm not going to miss my opportunity. Turn to the person next to you and say, and I'm not going to miss my opportunity. You didn't say it like you actually meant that. Turn to the person and say it like this, and I'm not going to miss my opportunity. Man, we have an opportunity right in front of us right now. We have an opportunity, and I'm not saying it's going to be the next weeks or the next months or even the next couple of years. But we have a vision right in front of us. And I said this last week. The Ridgepoint Church, the couple hundred people that call Ridgepoint Church home, that we could influence and affect the world. And again, that might not happen next week or even next month or next year. But I believe squarely in that vision. As long as we focus on this, our purpose as a church, I don't know if you all see this, but it's to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus by being a church unchurched people love to attend. We had that up on the wall, on the screens earlier, and now we have it up on this paper. But the thing is, this is paper. If you and I don't buy into the vision ourselves, then it's meaningless. It means, it means nothing. But the church looked and said, here's our vision, here's what we're supposed to do, let's rally around the vision, and there's cohesion. And so we want to make it hard for Gentiles to come to Jesus, so we want to embrace that message, embrace that purpose. And there's cohesion around that vision. Listen, about, I was doing some quick math this week, and about 19 years ago, this coming August, I stepped foot on a church campus for the very first time as a staff member to church. I was a young youth pastor, and, and, and I had something both that was an advantage and disadvantage in my life. I didn't grow up going to church. In fact, one of the very first times I ever was in a youth group setting was when someone gave me a book and said, you're now in charge. And so I didn't know what youth group was supposed to look like. Like, I didn't know, like, what are you supposed to do next? Like, okay, I got some curriculum and stuff, but, but what do we do from here? I didn't have a lot of context. I didn't have, here's how youth ministry had been for so many years. And so I just started to say, okay, let's start developing a vision. 
And God gave us way more than we ever deserved through that whole process. Didn't have a lot to rely upon in past history, but also didn't have a lot of past history to get in the way. And what I started discovering in a very short time was that the students who were getting really excited about this message were the ones who'd never heard this message before. And they started getting plugged in, and they started growing. And, and, and because they didn't go to church, they had a whole bunch of friends that had never been to church before. And so they started inviting their friends to church, and, and things started to snowball and, and, and just, just kind of blow up in, in a bunch of different ways. And, and it was very difficult because through the process, it was messy. When you do this type of ministry, it can get really messy very quickly. And, and you're dealing with people whose lives are, man, they're just they're messy, and, and you're getting involved, and it gets messy. You get messy yourself. And it's difficult. And I remember at that point, I had a friend of mine that we'd gone to college together. And I said, man, I don't have a lot of church experience. I need some help here. And so I started to lean on, on him and say, hey, we talk every couple months. And I, I had two friends I was talking to basically at that point uh, who had a lot more knowledge than I did. And I said, what do I do in this situation? We're dealing with all this stuff, and I have no idea how to respond to the situation. And I had a couple of people that I leaned on. A little bit later, one of those guys, we started meeting on a pretty semi-frequent basis, a couple times a year. I said, man, here's what we've been doing in youth ministry. And he said, well, that's kind of neat because that's what we've been doing in church for the last couple of years. And so the things that I started to learn about my process, then he started talking about, we were trying to do something like this. And we started talking and comparing notes and kind of helping each other out through those processes. And 11 years ago, this month in fact, he and the leadership of the church were beginning to transition the church he was at from First Baptist Church of Janfield Village to Ridgepoint Church. I saying, we want to be a church that is reaching people that don't go to church. There's been so much of people just jumping from one church to the next and saying, I'm going to find where that's not what we want. We want to reach people who are desperate for the gospel. A vision doesn't change. That being said, there's a quote way back then we used to talk about. I want to bring this back up. Craig Groeschel is a pastor of Life Church. At that point, he said this In order to reach people no one is reaching, we have to do what no one else is doing. What that means is we're going to continue to have the vision that we have. might be tweaked a little bit from time to time because time is constantly changing. Our, our world is a dynamic world. So at some points, we're going to say, here's the plan. Here's where we're going. But in this desperate moment, we're going to sit there and get down on one knee. And we're going to start to drop some plays in the sand. And we're going to say, well, the plan hasn't changed. But the execution of that plan has. Oftentimes at the end of the message, we'll try to say, okay, here's kind of our, our challenge for the week. Here's the way to implement that message. Today it's one thing. I want to encourage you, if at all possible, to be here tonight for status. Because this is a two-week series, but it's really three different types of messages. This week and next week we'll talk about the, the vision stuff. But tonight we're going to talk about drawing that play in the sand. We're going to talk about what that looks like for us. In particular, in 2017, here's the things that are upcoming, but also with uh, some effect on what's going to bring in the coming years. Uh, so two things I want to challenge you to do. Number one, if at all possible, be here tonight uh, for status. We're going to eat chili. We picked out the perfect uh, Sunday for having soup and chili, so we're going to kind of uh, cool off, after, warm up after a cool day and, and have some soup and chili together, sing some songs together. Uh, but then also we're going to start to share the, the vision behind here. Here's what we want to accomplish this year. 
and draw those plays in the sand and say, here's what is coming. We're going to celebrate communion together and do all that stuff. But the second thing, and this one's really important. I mentioned this two weeks ago. But in the seat back in front of you, uh, there should be cards that are the RPC partnership cards. We've talked about this and we said, we want you to bring those cards tonight. But I want to encourage you, especially if you have uh, children who are old enough to comprehend and understand this, would be to go home today and actually talk to your family about this. Talk about here's why this is a big deal and here's why we're choosing to do this or not to do this. Uh, we don't do regular church membership here. We do annual church partnerships. And so we're trying to have everyone bring those cards here tonight. Now, if it's totally impossible for you to be here tonight, that's fine. You bring those cards back next Sunday. We'll still accept them. Um, but we're going to have a chance tonight to come together as to church and say, okay, we're rallying behind this vision. Let's do this thing. So kind of our marching orders leaving here is that that's what we really want to give you as, as the challenge to this week is those two things. Let's pray together. God, your word tells us that where there is no vision, the people lack restraint or the, the, the people are just unaware of what's going on. And so, God, I, I pray that this morning we began a conversation of talking about here's, here's what our vision is and here's why we do some of the things that we do. And, God, I believe, just having been here now for, for seven years, I believe that that conversation is an ever-present conversation because we do live in a dynamic world that changes. But, God, as much as our world changes, I'm glad we serve a God that doesn't. God, I'm thankful that you're timeless, that you're absolute. I thank you that your word never fails us and that you're constant in our life, that you promise never to leave us and never to forsake us. God, I pray as we talk about being a church, unchurched people love to attend. God, I pray for the person this morning who maybe comes into our church and said, I've never been so sure about this whole Jesus thing. But if he is who he claims he is, then I want to choose today to follow him, to realize that he died to take my place. And God, I want to choose today to follow him, to accept him as my Savior. And for that person, I pray that right now is the moment of their salvation. For the person who says, I'm not there yet, I pray they continue to come and just be made aware of who Jesus is and how he can bring deliverance to their life. And God, for the person who has made that decision, I pray that even right now in the midst of this moment, that your spirit would be ministering to our hearts, convicting us of, of where we've kind of failed in, in the vision you have for our lives personally, and then together as a church, our lives corporately. God, bless us, multiply us as we try to accomplish your purpose and your will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.